From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph back home. So glad that you are with us. Tony here in August is taking some time away. So you and I are going to spend some time together and I'm looking forward to doing that as we continue to cover all of the happenings in Washington, D.C. And though August is historically a time when people get away and maybe take some time off. It remains to be seen whether that's going to happen this year or not. So here we go. Lots to cover. Before we get to it, I want to remind you that you can uh, follow uh, the show at TonyPerkins.com. You can watch it, find it uh, on demand there at any time. Also, you can find Tony on Gab at Tony underscore Gab. Also encourage you to down- to download the Stand Firm app on the App Store and Google Play. Anytime you want, so you can stay connected with Family Research Council and all of its offerings, including Washington Watch. Also, uh, we are going to discuss this later in the program, but the Family Research Council Action held a school board boot camp in June of this year uh, because of the growing demand uh, for uh, school board activism, people wanting to get on the school board because of things related to critical race theory, uh, various uh, sexual revolutionary um, topics being discussed in school against the uh, over the objection of many parents and a lot of parents getting motivated to get involved in that. And the school board boot camp was done to help parents who want to get on the school board do so. And if you were not able to participate, but you want to watch the content because that's something you care about, I encourage you to visit frcaction.org slash schools and find all the content from that boot camp. And now for the program today, uh, lots going on in the mask world. Uh, federal ma- mandates uh, back in Congress, uh, perhaps for uh, employees as well. Uh, we're going to talk about all of this. In late May, President Biden said that he directed the U.S. intelligence community to redouble their efforts in investigating the origins of COVID-19 and report back to him in 90 days. Well, we are about uh, three weeks away from that deadline. But today, House Republican staffers in the House Foreign Affairs Committee released an addendum to their final report. And they concluded that it's, quote, time to completely dismiss the wet market as the source of the outbreak. So they're saying nobody ate a bat. They also believe that, quote, the preponderance of the evidence proves the virus did leak from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. With me now to talk about this and other COVID-19 developments over the past few days is Greg Stubbe, who's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. He represents the 17th Congressional District of Florida. Congressman Stubbe, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, so glad to have you. Um, Give us in your mind, what is the highlight of today's release? What do you think Americans need to know about what we're learning? Yeah, and I want to read this. I don't typically read in an interview, but I want to read it so I get it exact so that the American people and the people that watch your show can get exact details of what the evidence laid out in this report state. So the reason why we, we believe that obviously it came from a lab is on multiple pieces of evidence. The first is the sudden removal of the Wuhan Institute of Virology's virus and sample database in the middle of the night on September 12th of 2019 without explanation. Safety concerns expressed by top PRC scientists in 2019 and unusually scheduled maintenance at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Athletes at the Military World Games held in Wuhan in October of 2019 who became sick with symptoms similar to COVID-19, both while in Wuhan and also shortly after returning to their host countries. Satellite imagery of Wuhan in September and October of 2019 showed a significant uptick in the number of people at local hospitals surrounding Wuhan's Institute of Virology's headquarters, coupled with an unusually high number of patients with symptoms similar to COVID-19. Now, these are things that we have gotten evidence on our own. Obviously, the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government aren't going to give us any information or allow inspectors to go into there or allow inspectors to go into the Institute to determine for themselves exactly where this came from. But this is certainly a lot of factual-based evidence that lead us to the conclusion that the virus came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If it could be determined conclusively that the, the virus came from the lab and not from a wet market, what would the uh, the appropriate response of the United States government be to that information? 
Well, I, obviously, the Biden administration isn't going to do anything as it relates to the Chinese Communist Party. But the, the, the American government and our U.S. government should take action against the Chinese Communist Party. They knew that they were researching this virus in that lab. I guarantee you they knew when it was leaked out because they started having people getting sick around, around Wuhan, just like I had described, and people going to hospitals. They purposely withheld the symptoms and severity of COVID-19 to the American public. We know that for a fact. The WHO confirmed that, um, that, that they misled the world on what the severity of this disease was. So the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party should be held responsible for the over millions of deaths across the world, over 600,000 Americans' death uh, in our country. So we absolutely should have the Chinese Communist Party responsible for allowing this virus to leak and, and not holding it in the borders of the Chinese the Chinese um, geography. Well, meanwhile, we are still wrestling with how to best handle the outbreak in, in our country. And I want to play a clip uh, from Dr. Fauci over the weekend in his conversations about what we should be doing now. And then I want to give you a chance to respond to that. So a person's individual, individual decision to not wear a mask not only impacts them, because if they get infected, even though they say it's my decision, if I get infected, I'll worry about that. But the fact is, if you get infected, even if you are without symptoms, you very well may infect another person who may be vulnerable, who may get seriously ill. So in essence, you are encroaching on their individual rights because you're making them vulnerable. So you could argue that situation both ways. So, Congressman Stubbe, what's your reaction to Dr. Fauci's argument that, that not wearing a mask is an infringement on the rights of other Americans who may choose to wear a mask? Look, if masks work, then why do we have a vaccine? If vaccines work, then why are those that are vaccinated now being forced by the government to wear masks? Um, President Biden himself said if you were fully vaccinated, you didn't have to wear a mask months ago. And now they're a complete reversal of that policy. So you're getting a lot of misinformation from our own government, from the Center uh, for Disease and Health Control for all of our government programs. You're not getting actual factual information. There's no scientific evidence that the lockdowns worked, And they don't if you look at the data and you look at the results that we had in states like Florida versus California versus New York early on the pandemic. I I've read from scientists that it's actually those that are vaccinated that are driving this Delta variant because those that had natural exposure to the COVID-19 virus are able to ward off the Delta variant because they had natural exposure to that. Look, if you don't want to wear a mask and you don't believe that you should be forced to wear a mask, I don't believe that the government should force you to make that decision. And if you're one of those people that Dr. Fauci was talking about and they feel like they would be infected, if you get the vaccine and you get vaccinated, you believe that that's effective then there's no reason why other people or yourself should have to wear a mask. Have you gotten an answer to that question? Because I think it's a fair question that if the vaccine works, uh, what is it the people who have been vaccinated are trying to protect themselves from? Because they continue to make the argument that it's for your safety. But how can it be for our safety if, in fact, we've already done the things, get a vaccine, that, that they're supposed to make us safe? Have you heard an, a, a response uh, to that argument from the uh, from the administration? No, and they won't answer it, and they won't tell the American people that in the VAERS system, over 4,000 Americans have died just from the vaccine. Perf perfectly healthy people that died from getting vaccinated, and, th and the system doesn't, uh, it underreports those that take some type of blood clotting or some type of other issue with the vaccine. Why should you take something that may harm you if the result is you're still going to get infected? There's people that have had COVID-19 vaccinations that have died. There are people that have had the vaccinations that have gotten sick. And there's no scientific way to prove that if they weren't vaccinated and got natural immunity, that they would be any different than they would be with the vaccine. So you're getting a lot of misinformation and a, not a lot of evidence that the vaccine actually protects American people. And if you believe it does, and I encourage if if you want to take the vaccine, I encourage you to go get vaccinated. But I don't believe that it's the best decision based on you and a discussion with your doctor for all Americans. If you're young, if you're not at risk, you're better off getting the actual COVID and getting natural immunity from COVID than you are getting the vaccination. 
Well, Congressman Stubbe, I know that you have a hard break here at, uh, at the quarter of the hour. And so I am going to let you go to get on to your next interview, but really do appreciate you joining us. I wish we had more time because there's so much to discuss here, but really appreciate you taking some time for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And my next question that I was going to ask, and I did want his response to, but he did have to go, um, is the requirement that Nancy Pelosi has made for members of Congress, who I, I think all of them are in, are in fact vaccinated. And I think that was something that was, was done early on by, by everyone in Congress. But we now have these new mask mandates by Speaker Pelosi saying that everybody in the House of Representatives has to get those. And I would have loved to hear his response to that uh, because understandably, and this goes to the, the, the point we made earlier, that what what benefit is being is derived from continuing to wear masks if you have if you have taken the vaccine, if you have done what you were supposed to do to make yourself safe? And and I think lost in all of this, um, in, in in the 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 public service announcements that we continue to hear on the radio, on television, get vaccinated, get vaccinated, get vaccinated. My sense is that those who are vaccine hesitant and who for some reason uh, have chosen to this point, uh, though certainly having the option available to them for a long time not to do so. Uh, need something different than being told what to do. I don't expect that's going to be very effective. And I think the administration needs to get better at persuasion rather than just telling people uh, this is what's best for you. But uh, on, the, on the point of telling people what's best for you and making things painful, I want to play clip three here. This is a new, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo uh, from New York talking about what he thinks should happen in New York to get people vaccinated. Private businesses, I am asking them and suggesting to them, go to vaccine-only admission. Go to vaccine-only admission. I believe it's in your business interest to run a vaccine-only establishment. We're the first state in the nation to have something called the Excelsior Pass. Rob Mejica made it a reality. We have passes. They're on apps. They're on phones. It's very simple. You can operate a restaurant and just say, you have to show that you were vaccinated when you walk in the door. It's going to help your business not hurt it. Vaccine-only businesses. Is this a new thing in the United States? Will this be the new segregation? Um, I think one thing that we can take to the bank is the fact that not everyone is going to be vaccinated. What's interesting about the plan that is being imposed right now for the government, that you have a plan in which everybody is required to do the same thing, and everyone is supposed to do what you want them to do. In what world is that a good plan? In what world has any government, a, a, a government that values freedom, been able to say, our plan is you do exactly what we say all the time. That's just not a good plan when you're dealing with free people. But uh, that does appear to be the plan right now. And because they didn't get the level of cooperation they wanted at the start, now the plan, instead of adjusting the plan and, and working with people who see the world differently, now the plan is to make it as painful as possible for those who have so far not complied. Is that going to work? Uh, Color Me is one of the ones who are skeptical about that plan. But we're going to talk about this and the the level of pain that the administration is looking to bring next. Stay with us. We're going to talk about whether this is even legal right after the break. When it comes to reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's word. 
Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in his image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Glad that you have joined us. As we reported at the end of last week, President Biden announced late Thursday that federal employees and contractors who work on site at government facilities must either attest that they have been vaccinated or agree to wear a mask at all times and submit to regular screening for COVID-19. Every federal government employee will be asked to attest to their vaccination status. Anyone who does not attest or is not vaccinated will be required to mask no matter where they work, test one or two times a week to see if they've they've acquired COVID, socially distance, and generally will not be allowed to travel for work. Likewise, today, I'm directing my administration to take steps to apply similar standards to all federal contractors. Now, the announcement does not come as a surprise, but it does come with some not-so-obvious issues. Joining with me now to talk about why the president's announcement is problematic is Roger Severino, who serves as the director of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights in the Trump administration. And he currently is a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Roger, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back. Well, you wrote a great article uh, this week, uh, talking about why there are legal, le- why there are legal problems with the Biden administration's uh, requirement of all federal employees, tell us a little bit more about that. Sure, it is a scarlet U that they're trying to brand on every person who is unvaccinated. The Americans with Disabilities Act actually prevents unnecessary medical exams, not just for persons with disabilities, but for all persons in the workplace. The Biden administration has to put a legitimate business necessity to justify twice a week nasal swabbing of people. The problem is they have not announced any exceptions whatsoever. And really, some aides have admitted to CNN that the real reason is to make it as burdensome and as difficult as possible to hound every person who's not vaccinated in order to force them to get vaccinated. That is not a legitimate use of a medical exam under the ADA. I would expect many lawsuits, because the federal government is quite large, there are many people who are going to resist this, and many lawsuits should be forthcoming shortly. Now, I want to underscore the point that you just made about some admissions from AIDS. In the quote I'll, I'll read here, is to it, they, the AIDS said that it is, quote, 
to render being unvaccinated so burdensome that those who haven't received shots will have little choice other than to get them. Why do you think they are working so hard to get people who don't want to get an injection? Uh, why are they working so hard to make them take the vaccine? Well, it's a matter of control. If it were really about infection prevention, then they would make that same requirement for people who already had COVID versus people who are vaccinated. Here, they're making only the people who already had COVID and have not been vaccinated receive the vaccine or do these burdensome tests. What about those people who are vaccinated that now we know can also pass it on? If it's really about infection control, they would impose those same burdens and testing on them as well. But if you're vaccinated, you get a pass. If you already had COVID, you don't get a pass. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't sound like it's science driving it. It's something else. They're trying to make a point to get as many people under their thumb under the vaccination scheme. And I think it's mostly a matter of control. Unfortunately, I think this is related to what was left over from the Trump days. Folks who identify are trying to discriminate against people who are seen as more conservative and are not coming on board with the vaccine mandate. But that's not the case. We have a lot of minority communities that are also uh, hesitant about it. And whatever happened to the ability of a people to choose for themselves and their families, what is best when everybody who wants a vaccine can get it and the people who are under 12 who cannot, their mortality is vanishingly small compared to so many other diseases that we don't go out of our way to force others to comply. You make an interesting point there. Do you think that this is more uh, using vaccines as kind of a, a philosophical or a political litmus test, and they think they have identified the people who are on the wrong side just generally, and they're using this as a way to punish them? Do you think it's more that than actual concerns about a virus spreading? I think that's certainly part of the story. The drumbeat from the media that this this uh, COVID emergency will never end. And now that we have new variants, which are real, uh, but the death rates are so much lower than they were at the height of this crisis. Yet, if you have it on a crisis footing, you'll be able to brand certain people resistors and try to disparage and discredit them. When, in fact, we do have a tradition in America of informed consent especially when this is a vaccine under an emergency use authorization. In the statute itself, people have a right to decline it. However, we've moved beyond that. When we already had mask mandates, we already had shutdowns, people are really starting to wonder, where does it end? And until there's a very clear end game that our government and our scientific professionals can say, if X, Y, and Z happen, it is over. Until we could get that and have those clear goals, people are still going to be skeptical. Again, if you want to get the vaccine, you can get it. If you want uh, to mask to have an additional protection, you could do that. It's a question of forcing others, especially when you have these uh, uneven-handed tests going on where only some people are being targeted who are unvaccinated when some people of equal risk that are vaccinated are not being tested. In this case, those that have had COVID versus those who have been vaccinated as well. Roger, the, the requirements released by the Biden administration also say that these mask requirements for employees, they exist, quote, no matter their geographic location, physical distance from all other employees and visitors. It seems that they may have gone out of their way to say it doesn't matter if you're a mile away from the nearest employee, hundreds of yards from the nearest employee, you still have to wear a mask. Is that is that an indication of just the fact that this is much more about kind of just punishing people rather than actually trying to uh, stop the spread? Yeah, it's like the slow boiling frog. You slowly raise the temperature and slowly raise it until all of your rights are gone and all dissent is quashed. Here you have people who cannot really be a threat if they're at home and working from home, yet they're being banned from traveling as well. Whatever happened to masks being effective on airplanes? We have people on airplanes every single day in close proximity to each other, and that guidance hasn't changed. The Biden administration isn't saying you should not travel on airplanes anymore, but if you're a federal worker, you cannot travel on airplanes anymore? That makes no sense, unless the point is you want to punish people. And again, if that is your purpose, that is a violation under the ADA. Roger Severino, greatly appreciate your time with us today. Uh, we will look forward to continuing to track this because I have a feeling there's a lot going to happen on the legal front uh, with these federal employees. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you.
and stay with us right after the break. We're going to go to Nigeria and some terrible developments for Christians. We'll talk about it after the break. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with the like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Bacchus. So glad that you are with us. According to a new report, about 17 Christians in Nigeria on average were murdered each day in the first half of 2021. This estimate was released about two weeks ago by the International Society for Civil Liberties and the Rule of Law, known as Intersociety. Since 2010, the Research and Investigative Rights Group based in eastern Nigeria has been monitoring and investigating religious persecution and other forms of religious violence by state and non-state actors across Nigeria. And according to Inner Society, the estimated 3,462 deaths reported through July 18 of this year is the second highest since 2014, when more than 5,000 Christian deaths were recorded at the hands of Boko Haram and Fulani herdsmen. Joining me to discuss the report is former U.S. State Department official Douglas Burton, who is currently an investigative reporter on terrorism for the Epoch Times. Douglas, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you, Joseph. Honored to be here. Well, we're glad to. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. Now, tell us, uh, it seems to be getting worse in Nigeria recently. We compared at least the, as bad as it's been since 2014. Uh, what has happened that is making things worse for Christians in Nigeria? Well, the reason is that there is more terrorism from Fulani terrorists in the Middle Belt. Okay, so. Uh, the deaths caused by the ISIS-related insurgency called Boko Haram, they've tapered off or they are less uh, significant than the deaths caused by an undeclared insurgency composed of uh, the Fulani people who are attacking Christian villages and cleansing them. And uh, that is a horrific phenomenon that is happening in about 10 different states, but especially in the north central states. Now, tell us, who are the Fulani herdsmen and how do they come to be more dangerous than uh, Boko Haram and, and basically ISIS? Well, it's a very large ethnicity and it's full of very brilliant and hardworking, talented people. The Fulani tribe is one of the biggest tribes in Africa. There are estimated to be 32 to 35 million Fulani people, and they're spread out over 10 or 11 countries all over West Africa. There is about 
12 million Fulani people who live in Nigeria. And the president of Nigeria, uh, Muhammadu Buhari, and most of his cabinet members, they uh, they hail from this ethnicity. So there, there's nothing particularly wrong with this this ethnicity. They they are very famous for being uh, herders of cattle all over Africa, and they are very proud of practicing Islam and the terrorists in Nigeria that are causing so much damage tend to be a subset of this ethnicity, and they are radicalized uh, Muslim terrorists who happen to be in the business of forcing uh, sedentary farmers out of their way so that they can make room for their cattle herds. That's the, that's the, that's the nub of it, and it's been going on for many years, but it hasn't been opposed. It has not been stopped. So it's just they're they're doing it more and more. Are you saying that this is as much economical as it is religious in in inspiration? Yeah, there there is an economic aspect and a religious aspect to it. Uh, <clears throat> terrorism needs to be seen through the lens of a business model. Uh, there is tremendous economic benefit to banditry, which is pandemic in this country, and in also. Uh, there also, there's great money to be made in forcing the Christian farmers off of their land. The, according to our sources, the terrorists are getting paid uh, to do this. They get paid about 150 to 200 dollars per raid, and there are thousands of them who are employed by someone we don't know who uh, to uh, clear the land of the indigenous farmers. Now. You say that the Nigerian government is simply not doing anything about it. Why is that? Certainly, they're aware of this. Are they? Are they? Are they cooperating? Why is it that the 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 Christians there feel like this is unopposed and they're left unprotected uh, by the government? That's a good question. But actually, the Christians are right. We've been re- reporting on this for more than two years, and the army does very little to protect the people. In, in fact. You know, one of the issues of the story that we just published on the Epoch Times, uh, you can find it. The author is a grassroots uh, citizen journalist named Lawrence Zongo. So you can look for his name by Lawrence Zongo, uh, the Epoch Times. And the, the Nigerian government tends to be biased toward the Fulani herders because President Buhari is from this ethnicity and he tends to favor their their myth and their their sense of of uh, ownership or their their sense of entitlement. They believe that they should own all of Nigeria, and so they've been uh, they've been aggressively uh, attacking sedentary farmers all all over the Middle Belt. Some are Muslim, but most are are Christian, so that they can and they claim that they are entitled to it. And, uh, but there's another aspect to it also. I mean, the fact is there is a soaring population in. Nigeria, uh, like in all African countries, and there are dwindling resources, you know, arable land and water. And so the farming populations are getting bigger. So more and more people are going out onto the land. They can't get jobs in the rest of the economy. So they go out and farm. That's how they can make money. And meanwhile, the herding people, they've got big population too. So they're clashing uh, in the Sahel uh, from north to middle part of Nigeria. But the the problem is for the farmers is that the government doesn't favor their way of this of seeing this clash. They see the they are favoring the ethnicity that is is a uh, Douglas Britton, I, Epoch Times. I, I do have to cut you off. We are at a hard break here. Thanks for taking the time. We will check in with you on this again. Stay with us. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it, both domestically and internationally? By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media, even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world. 
God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org slash IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Pray, Vote, Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Sitting in for Tony today. Uh, we had a great conversation with Douglas Burkett. Uh, Burton of the Epoch Times about Nigeria. We did run out of time there. And uh, before we move on, I want to make you aware of a resource that Family Research Council has on this topic. It is a paper uh, called The Crisis of Christian Persecution in Nigeria. And it goes into much more detail than we were able to in that short conversation. I would commend that to you if you want to understand religious freedom internationally and the landscape that a lot of Christians are living in around the globe, the crisis of Christian persecution in Nigeria. You can find that at frc.org slash Nigeria. Again, that's frc.org slash Nigeria to get that, uh, to get that paper and document and read that. Now, uh, moving on, late Thursday, the Augusta County School Board in Virginia declined to adopt policies provided and required by the state regarding the treatment of transgender students. At a special meeting called to decide on the policy changes, around 500 concerned members of the community gathered, a majority of whom objected to the state's model policies which mostly center on allowing minor students to determine their own sexual and gender identities, forcing educators and their classmates to comply with their wishes. Here is what one community member at the meeting had to say. Let's go ahead and play clip five. Should we make every child in Augusta County a ward of the state and make you the parents? Our children should not receive, cannot receive an aspirin or cold medicine without our permission. But you want them to choose another agenda without our knowledge. educational setting. You already have anti-bullying and, and non-discrimination, non-discrimination exactly. legislation in place. Why accept this government overreach? Exactly. Why open this Pandora's box? Why a few students' comfort is more important than a vast majority of students' discomfort? Exactly. As a Christian leader in this community, you must understand that these observations are not fueled by hatred or bigotry. This is common sense. This is ethical, and this is about safety for everyone. 
Joining me now to talk about how parents are organizing to take back their public schools, as well as other SOGI news, that is sexual orientation, gender identity news, is Meg Kilgannon, Senior Fellow for Education Studies at Family Research Council. Meg, welcome back. It's great to be here, Joseph. Great to see you. Well, it's great to see you and uh, great speech by that parent, I think. Um, there is a growing interest in what's happening at the school board level. Parents are getting engaged. Uh, what do you attribute this to? Uh, there were that that was one example of a lot of great speeches. That parent really summed it up well. Um, this is because parents had the opportunity during the pandemic when kids were forced to school at home um, with online learning, and parents had to actually see what was going on. Um, and this has generated a lot of unrest and, in some cases, outrage. Um, and the fact that Virginia passed the bill that mandated the adoption of this of transgender policies, quote unquote, by school boards um, makes this a really um, critical issue right now in Virginia. And it's really great to see these local school boards pushing back, um, saying things like Richmond values are not our county's values and we're going to represent the parents in our county. That's the kind of local control of education that is essential to parental rights in education. I would agree with you, and I want to talk about the local rights in education, but we've highlighted here Augusta County. Uh, have you heard of other school boards in Virginia or maybe in other states who have simply said no to the state? We are not going to do this. Is that is this a trend? I it, that There is a trend definitely that parents are pushing back, and there is a trend that people are starting to run for school board and try to take over their school boards. Um, we have several counties in Virginia who are not adopting this policy. We have other counties who are writing the policy as supportive of parents' rights as it could possibly be written, and that is also a victory. Uh, and so when, when we have these people across the country who are engaging in the process, that's a good thing for kids, and it's a good thing for schools. Parents are the primary educators of their children, and they need to be in full partnership with schools in order to make sure that everyone's voice is heard in the system, including the voices of conservatives and people of faith. Amen to that. This is an encouraging development. I just want to uh, remind people of something I talked about earlier in the program, the um, school board boot camp that FRC Action put on in June. If this conversation, if these parents are inspiring you to get involved and you're thinking maybe I should do this on behalf of my kids, we, of course, would encourage you to do that and uh, follow your instincts there and get the resources available at frcaction.org slash schools. All the information from the school board boot camp is there uh, to not only uh, confirm for you why you should get involved at your school level, but how to do it. Practically, what are the steps that you need to take, build a coalition in your community, and do that? Now, Meg, I want to, um, on a personal level, my brother was actually on a school board mm -hmm. in Washington State uh, when he lived there. And he tells a story. When he got elected, the first thing that happened is basically uh, the State Department of Education brought in the newly elected school board members and essentially told them all that, actually, you kind of work for us. We tell you what you need to do, and you are essentially legally obligated to rubber stamp anything that we tell you, or you're going to lose all your funding. Mm -hmm. um, is that a Washington State situation? Uh, is this unique to see uh, school boards essentially throwing off the bonds of their overlords from the state <laughs> and saying, actually, we are going to claim the authority that we as school board members are supposed to have, and we're actually going to guide what the direct what the what the government, what the education in our in our community is. Is this a new development? Well, there are different models of state governance all over the country. Um, Virginia, for example, is a Dillon rule state. I don't know what what the governance model is in Washington state, but there, in some cases, the local school board has more power than the state government. And in some cases, the state government can hold funds hostage. Now, in Virginia, they have the superintendent, the state superintendent of schools and other people in the Virginia Department of Education have said that they will not hold funds uh, hostage if schools fail to adopt the policy. 
But they also have uh, said that, you know, school districts should expect to be sued, uh, expect civil litigation and have to the school district would have to bear the brunt of those costs. There won't be any additional money from the state to help with with those expenses. So these are controversial issues and it takes people who are willing to really stand up for what they know to be right in these trying times. And that really is why we need good people to run for school board and dig into these situations, dig into the details, dig into the facts and figure out the way that we can make sure our voices are heard and our values are expressed and honored. In, in the education context, this is really the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, which is something that our founding fathers got a deep, deep roots in, in our American experience, where when we disagree with the government, we don't necessarily just do it as individuals throwing off the bonds. Um, we, the, the, the lower magistrates, the sheriffs, the mayors, the county commissioners, the school boards, the, the governing authorities at the local level essentially just tell the governing of, uh, officials at the higher level that we're not going to comply with this. We are going to push back on behalf of the people that we represent. And that is a much more effective way to have a a, a peaceful political revolution uh, in pushing back. And we've seen examples of this with sheriffs who just simply decline to enforce laws that they believe to be uh, either authoritarian or otherwise unconstitutional. And so to me, this is encouraging. And, and Meg, would you say that the threat of, of a loss of education funds, when we're talking about uh, indoctrination of, of our children in really uh, some dogma that kind of comes with the sexual revolution that is in every way harmful. It's not just false. It's it's deeply harmful. Uh, would you tell school boards and parents that it doesn't really matter if you lose funds? We shouldn't have our kids, you know, their, their souls for sale for government education funds, should we? Absolutely not. And I, I honestly think that that's a big bluff on the part of the state government, because it's going to be a very bad look for them if children are not getting the hot meals that schools deliver, if children who are from less fortunate homes are not getting the services they need at school and no one is learning in school because the state is forcing these social justice action items on school boards, that's not going to play out well politically. So I think just one or two bluffs need to be called and things will take a a shift our way. I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think they mean I don't think they want kids to go without (laughs) critical services just in service of their uh, of their uh, kind of their radical social political agenda. Now, uh, let's contrast this story with what's going on at the school board with what's happening at the American Medical Association, who uh, just came out with a statement essentially saying that birth certificates do not need to have sex designations. Uh, what's going on there? Well, I think that the medical, the American Medical Association is confused about the difference between sex and gender. And we have sex markers on birth certificates. Sex is uh, male or female. It is observed at birth and easily identified almost all of the time. And that is why it is put on birth certificates. We organize lots of record keeping and statistics around this observable fact of the human person, their biological sex. And so to to say that birth certificates are here to serve the needs of individuals is really dishonest. Um, first of all, it doesn't serve the needs of individuals for a, a public document to attest to a lie. And it doesn't serve the needs of individuals uh, for us to not have all the information about people that we need to live in a civil society. What would the implications be if birth certificates no longer indicated whether this child was a male or a female? Well, we have a situ- we've had a situation in Virginia a, f- a year or two ago when we had a child who was born out of state in a state that allowed very young children to change their sex designations on their birth certificates. And then they moved to Virginia into a school district, and this male student 
wanted to access female spaces based on the sex designation on the birth certificate, which was in error. So that is the kind of complicating factor that can happen. We have a situation in California now where if you simply identify as a transgender, you can have men transferring over into the women's prisons. And this is creating all kinds of issues there. It is endangering women. It, it's ultimately very complicated. Crime statistics are divided by sex. And um, this is something that is going to cause great harm to everyone, and especially women lose when gender is the priority. Yeah, I want to I pick up on that story about the prisons, because uh, unsurprisingly, I think, to most of us who have, who have been observing this, uh, uh, prisoners in the California system who are women in women's only prisons are turning up pregnant. Wouldn't you know it? Um, because they adopted the policy that uh, male prisoners who claim to be female will be housed in the women's only uh, women's only prison. What could go wrong? Well, it doesn't actually require a lot of creativity to figure out what could go wrong. And we are, in fact, uh, now discovering that. One inmate was quoted, uh, referred to this as a nightmare's worst nightmare. And what would that, I mean, speaking of rape culture, right? You have people who are already proven to be um, violent offenders who are then put into the women's prison where they have no way to, nowhere to go, nowhere to escape because they are by nature of being in prison uh, confined. Is this, uh, how, how is this going to resolve itself or is it? How far are they willing to go um, f to defend their ideology? How many people are going to get hurt by this? Well, sadly, you know, not a lot of people pay attention to what happens in prisons. And so this is a population of people who are extremely vulnerable. These women are not on the nightly news. They don't have access to social media or other ways of explaining what's going on. So we're relying on reports from guards and concerned parties who are there as advocates. But there is a um, feminist group called the Women's Liberation Front that's filed some some injunctions and lawsuits in this matter. They're they're working hard on this issue. We, of course, as Christians, are very concerned about people being the the human dignity of every person, including the incarcerated, being honored. Um, this is a terrible situation for these women who are literally locked up with men uh, who are pretending to be women. And um, this would go to prove the the reality of biological sex being male or female when you have the reproductive proof of this fact in the case of pregnancies now occurring in the prison system. I mean, it, I don't mean to be dismissive by by saying that this is a terrible situation. This is a this is a potentially women are being raped by men who are identifying as women and who are allowed then by the California state government to transfer into women's jails. That's just crazy. Meg Kilgannon, it, it is crazy, and we appreciate you your time to help us see just how crazy this is. We will be uh, talking again soon, I know, uh, but thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Joseph. And all of this is just evidence of the fact that bad ideas have consequences. We're seeing it at the school board level. We're seeing it in prisons. We're seeing the medical professionals denying biological reality. Uh, what will be next? We'll cover it next time. Washington on Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.